Hi, I'm Anthony, the host of my PhD Experience Podcast, a show that brings to you interesting insights about how to navigate graduate school, bag your PhD, and secure a postdoctoral position. So today I'm bringing my very good friend, an expert in HIV, someone that has accomplished a lot in, in the research world to you to share his experience. So without further ado, let me just introduce my good friend, Femi Adiago. I call him Dr. Femi Adiago. Thank you for joining us today. Thank so, you for having me. Thank you. So please tell me a little bit about yourself. I'm sure you know me. <laughs> well, I just feel... For the sake of the of our listeners today. Yeah. So uh, my name is uh, I'm Oluwafemi Adiago. Yeah. I'm originally from Nigeria and I'm married with beautiful wife and two kids. And yes, I'm a, I'm a researcher. I love research so much that every time of my life, I just think about how we can use research to actually reduce the burden, you know, some of the social challenges, including health in our communities. I obtained my BA honors in philosophy. And that's in, from Adikunle Jackson University in Nigeria. Before then, I did a three-year diploma in, uh, at the University of Ibadan. And fast forward, I obtained a master's in migration studies at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. And later, my PhD degree in uh, sociology, you know, quite a kind of complicated background. And yeah, found myself in research and I'm loving it. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a quite an interesting one. You know, I think I know, I know someone too that studied philosophy and then found himself doing migration as well as sociology. <laughs> My friend could do Sadebaya. I mean, yeah, th- welcome to sociology. I myself, I'm also a sociologist, although I studied sociology both at undergraduates, masters, and a PhD level. So, yeah, we sociologists, we are solving problems in the world, and I'm happy to have you today. So, tell me your research interest. I think you didn't mention that. What, what topics do you conduct research on? My research interests are in uh, gender and sexualities, migration, sexually productive health and with expertise in implementation science, HIV AIDS research, health or development of interventions. And, uh, you know, implementation science means you taking whatever findings from research and you take it, you know, taking into practice in real life to solve problems. Yeah, so I'm quite interested in young people's, you know, uh, young people a lot, you know, how we can improve people's health outcome generally. Yeah. yeah th- thank you very much. I think we kind of have a similar interest in young people and uh, we try to solve uh, health challenges that young people face, including sexual reproductive health. But I think this takes me to an important question. What motivates you to pursue a PhD and a career in research? Well, thank you very much. That's, a, that's an interesting question. When I, I remember as early as late 90s, that would be like 99 or year 2000. Yeah, from 99 to year 2000, 2000, I got into UI, University of Ibadan. 
I, I studied um, industrial relations and I, I, I looked at it, I, I saw it, I, yes, I did well, but I wanted something more. And I could have gone for education, communication language arts, but I wanted something more. I took a break afterwards. I, you know, I wanted to get into university by all means by doing a direct entry after my diploma program. You know, it was difficult. Then I started working, but I knew I wanted something more. I quit my job. I went back to, to school, studied philosophy. And during my philosophy class, when I was about to complete that degree, I started thinking about, so I'm sorry, before then, in year, same year, 2002, sorry, I got admitted into the University of Leicester in the UK. Uh, you know, with ignorance, I kept the admission. I didn't tell my parents uh, because I had wanted to, to learn something from other culture, but that was by the way. So I, during my degree program, philosophy really exposed me to a lot of things. Naturally, I, you know, I'm a very curious person, but it, uh, philosophy really helped me discover who I am today, because I started questioning a lot of things. I started questioning assistance, started questioning cosmology. Why are we here? How did we get here? Why is there so much troubles in the world? If you have ever loving father up there. So I started questioning a lot. And my, my quest for knowledge was in something else then. I, even my lecturer saw it. And I started thinking, what would I do? And I had this from a lot of people that... If you study philosophy, you become a police officer or you become a teacher. But I wanted more. I wouldn't lie to you. So I, uh, I was a, one of our lecturers went to South Africa to study, and he sent a text message to a colleague to say there is this program in migration studies. If you could get in, you might get funded. I just saw the text on that guy's phone, and I copied it in my brain. And I was like, okay, I kept it there. I didn't do anything. Sometimes during my undergrad, I got this scholarship from Association of Nigerians Abroad in the U.S. You know, years ago. And that was the money I used to buy my first laptop. So I started thinking, research pays. If I could do something and these people liked it and they gave me money from the U.S. and I've never met them, then I should, you know, and I don't want to become a police officer. I don't want, I don't want to teach up. I don't want to become a secondary school teacher. It, you know, these are very good professions, but I just don't want to be. And that was when I started thinking, what else can I do? And I know that I cannot do, you know, I tried all this holiday work, bricklaying, did a lot of stuff for people just to make money. You know, probably this is the first time my dad will hear it if he listens to this, because my dad, you know, never believed I, you know, I did something like that. I do, he had room that. Oh, family did all the job. Wow. I knew, I, you know, I didn't have energy to do all this hard job. So what can I, I, then I started capitalizing on my strength in research. During my undergrad, so my, my lecturers would come to me, Femi, help us start for this thing online and I will find it. So I started saying, okay, this, is, this could be something I can pursue. But at that point, I didn't know how to go about it. So I applied for, for my master's program. I was admitted. I couldn't get a scholarship. I was working, you know, I, I left yeah, university then. I was working, I was doing well. In, I was working in Port Court and I deferred my admission. They said, no, you have to re-enroll. I re-enrolled, again, admission again. And I made up my mind at that point that if I had to pursue this research path, 
I have to study out of Nigeria, you know, from the very first beginning that I was going to study outside of Nigeria just to, you know, learn about other people's culture and learn more about research to help myself. And I went straight to South Africa, got a small scholarship, and I did. And when I completed as well my master's program, I started doubting myself that would I be able to do research, imposter syndrome setting. And I had a very good mentor then, you know, John Mark, John Mark, Professor John McGee, he called me one day and he said to me, you know, you can actually do it. Just do another master's. I was like, okay. And I wrote for another master's, but I didn't, few months into it, my supervisor, my master's supervisor called me. Oh, Femi, someone read your work in Germany and he had some money, wanted to do some research in South Africa. Would you want to work with him? And it's related to your master's work. I said, why not? And I did ethno, like core ethnographic work for almost a year. I was going to the field, just writing whatever in terms of story, sending it to Germany. And it was that point after I did that for a year. And, you know, that thing just told me, you're ready for your PhD program. And that was actually what led to my risk. So that, that was what really built me and helped me with research. And I started saying, okay, I think this is my, this is my strength. I need to pursue it. Yeah. So that was how I got into research. You know, don't let me. Wow, I think it's a, it's an interesting journey, you know. I mean, um, I've interviewed quite a number of people that that also, you know, share similar story in terms of um, not necessarily seeing themselves as a researcher at first, and then having someone nudging them, like their supervisor, their mentor. And then they suddenly realize and discover that they have skill and expert and competence for it for this, you know. So again, if you are listening, don't don't underrate yourself. There's a lot of potential in you that you are yet to tap into. You just need uh, the right mentor. So and this takes me to my next. You've sort of touched on the securing funding to get to South Africa, but again, we are going to talk about funding now. No, no, we are going to talk about funding. I think you've covered securing admission in one, one, one way or the other. So now, when you got into the PhD program, how did you decide your supervisor? <laughs> or, you, right. or you just carried on from the person that supervised your master's? Oh, thank you very much uh, for that question. So when I was working as a your research assistant going to the field, writing notes for this person. I knew I wanted more and I applied for a PhD program. Hmm. When I applied for the PhD program under the same supervisor that supervised my master's, she motivated, I gained admission to the University of Witwatersrand and I asked them for money in terms of funding. But university gave me the University Merit Award based on my PhD uh, master's results. So that would be for my, uh, that would be my, uh, my tuition. But in terms of survival, I wouldn't have anything because I would definitely quit my job for my PhD program at that point. And, you know, they couldn't give me additional money, but that was good, right? But I, I sat down again to reassess the admission to say, if I'm, going to study master, uh, PhD in migration study. I've already done master's in migration studies. How will this help me in future? Where do I see myself in 10 years? And will this degree still 
help me in that 10 years. Hmm. So I reassess my life, reassess where I want to be at that point. And I said, and before then, I've also been sending emails to a lot of people, like prospective potential supervisors in another, you know, in other universities. So my University of Johannesburg, uh, the, a professor at the University of Johannesburg responded. So she was actually surprised that a guy wanted to write about marriage, you know, marital issues, especially around single mothers. So I wanted to write something about single mothers. I wrote a proposal. She said, write me a proposal. I wrote the proposal. I sent it to her. So I submitted a separate proposal for my PhD program, you know, my, you know, my former university and this new university, I submitted another proposal. So you need to know what you want to do as a person. PhD is a, it's an independent program and it's a mentorship program, but you need to go approach a potential, it's potential supervisor with your own idea that this is what I want to do. And you ought to have read about the supervisor's research interest as well. And your re- current research interest must align with the supervisor's research interest so that they'll be able to provide you with, you know, good mentorship and information as well as materials that will help you to be successful in the program. So I approached my PhD, my PhD supervisor in, an, in another university, potential one, and she was interested. And I will tell you, I already had a PhD admission, right? Mm. My, my former university. So I didn't take that. So I went to the University of Johannesburg and they interviewed me and they said I should submit my CV. So my, applica- my PhD application was rejected in sociology at first. They said because I didn't have a background in sociology. And when I, I was disappointed, but I went there, some, 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 something in me said, go there and talk to them. I went there, I spoke to the head of the department and she was like, so do you have a, do you have your CV? I said, yes, can I see you? She saw my CV and I'd already published a paper or two mm, mm. during my master or immediately after my master's program. Mm. So she said, oh, you've published. She now asked me a question. She said, are you able to attend some postgraduate classes? Yeah, if we if you are admitted, would you be able to attend some classes? I said, yes, I don't mind. He said, but they are not credit-based just for you to learn about sociology. I said, yes. And when she saw that, and she asked me again for any of the writing I was working on then, I sent it to her. And I was actually admitted. And she said, no, you don't have to attend the classes, but you can attend them just voluntarily if you want, because I think you have a very good research experience. And that was why I was admitted into a PhD, uh, PhD program in sociology with no funding. Hmm. Hmm. And I took the decision because it was sociology. I paid my, my first year tuition. Hmm. And, that was, and towards the end of my first year tuition, I did well. I applied for a Commonwealth scholarship. I got it, hmm. which gave me like three years streets scholarship. Also, you know, I didn't mention about funding for my master's program. It wasn't easy. I didn't get a reference. I only got university, yeah, a portion to pay my tuition. But six months into the program, I was just all over the place. But I got the I, I got a scholarship from Germany as well. That really helped me settle, you know, during my master's program. I wanted sociology because sociology is much more broader than migration. I can actually put my migration under sociology. And I wanted to learn, you know, I wanted this broad perspective of, th- of things. And so when I got the admission into sociology, I was willing to pay my tuition, which I did. And 
paid my tuition, rented an apartment with the money I saved during my one-year research assistant job. And the reset, you know, the, 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 the rest was history afterwards. Yeah. So that's how I got into sociology and got my PhD admission. And yes. Now, I think it's, it's very interesting. You know, I, I, something just um, occurred to me to ask you this question, because I know our listeners are thinking, maybe we have some um, PhD students listening and they've been battling with securing funding. Do you have any tips on securing funding while doing PhD? Yeah. What would, you say, what would you say made you competitive enough to win some funding? But that, that's an, this is an interesting question. So you cannot go into PhD without having a kind of result, a required result during your master's program, hmm. which is an average of 65 in your research project. That's number one. And for you to be competitive uh, for, for funding, you must do your work very well, have good results. Even though you're undergraduates, try to good, have good results in your master's program. And do prove to your supervisor in your first year that you are worth every cent. Hmm. You really need to do that. And I think that was what I did in my first year. And when I applied for the Commonwealth Scholarship, my university just supported me with recommendation letters. And I put up, because I had good results also in my undergrad. I had second class upper, which is, you know, you don't have to have it if you have two, two. But your master's program, you must have a very good result in your research project. There are several requirements, your academic requirements or your behavioral requirements as well. Mm. Because your supervisor must be able to write something that I know this person, this person is brilliant and this person also has good behavior. PhD is more than your academic life. It's also about your behavior. It's about discipline. It's about perseverance. It's about many things. And these are the kind of things your supervisor will put in a recommendation letter for you to be competitive enough. So yes, I got common way, and that was what I what I did. Aside my results, I think my behavior and the fact that I worked very hard in my first year to prove to my supervisor that I worked ever since also gave me an edge. So at that point, you know, not only did I get a Commonwealth scholarship in my second year, I actually got several scholarships. In my second year, I got a National Research Foundation award as well. So I got enough money to do my PhD program, and I didn't have to worry about working, although I thought you know, during my PhD program, yes. That's a very interesting uh, perspective. Your great academic grades are very, very important, especially masters, your research um, grade as well, and um, your behavior as well. Now, that's actually an interesting one because you need good recommendations. So and your behavior can deny you a very good recommendation. So I think... That's some sort of good summary of what you need to pay attention to. Now, I want to pivot a little bit more now to writing the thesis itself. What was your experience? Because that, that thing is like a writing a Bible, right? So what was your experience? Man, you don't want to know. <laughs> but I, I think it, this, it is, that's another interesting question. And I'm, I'm glad you... You know, it, this is this is like a therapy session for me now that you ask me about my experience. So I will tell you, when I, I think I should start from my proposal. So when I wrote my, the proposal I wrote for my admission was quite different from what I wrote when I got in. 
So when I got in, my supervisor called me and said, oh, Femi, good, great. This is great. I have a lot of master's students writing the same thing that you wanted to. Do you want, can you just write something different entirely? I was like, come on, this is six months into my PhD program. I was like, Femi, you have to do that. If not, we don't have a study. I was like, okay, it's fine. So I wrote a proposal. I sent it to her. She read it. She was like, mm, we are not there. And, you know, I struggled. I won't lie to you. It's not a rocket science. I struggled. So I wrote my PhD proposal for like a year. And the second year of my PhD, I, was, um, I went to India as a research scholar at the University of Hyderabad. For, I was supposed to be there for six months, but I, I think I spent three months. And that really helped me. You know, I was independent. I started asking for some materials that I needed, but I couldn't assess them because my university didn't subscribe. So I wrote to the person who did the work in the US. And I said, please, I'm a PhD student. I'm battling with my, with my proposal. This is the case, this is the case. You know what I'm talking about proposal is, if you work on your proposal and you get your proposal correctly, that's 50% of your PhD is gone. If you can just get it right, 50%, because that is a framework or the skeleton to the whole thesis. So if you get it right, you get your thesis right. And that was my supervisor's opinion as well. So I wrote to this person who sent me some materials and I started contacting people. So my advice would be don't shy away from people. You, you, when you, and you have to read very widely. You have to read out of the box. You have to think out of the box because you are not the only one who is doing research. A lot of people are doing similar research, but what makes your own work distinct is that thing that we want to see. And that is what makes it a PhD thesis. So... Fast forward, I got it straight. My supervisor was happy after a year, like a year and six months past my PhD, you know, it was approved. And, you know, going to the field work, it was tough because I did a very interesting PhD, which is quite different from your normal work because I did it amongst um, priority population, like LGBTI population. And it was difficult. And for me to get into that, and I also want to say it here that when we work with participants, especially those who work, those of us who work with human beings directly, you have to treat them with empathy. And you have to treat them as human, not as a research subject. And you have to gain their trust. So it took me another six months to work with people, my potential participant, and writing a research thesis, it's another, you know, it's like a Robin Crusoe on an island. Your supervisor wants to see initiative. It requires discipline. It requires perseverance. It requires your tenacity to succeed. It has to be there. There must be that drive. So writing a PhD thesis is not easy. It's different from writing an academic paper. Writing a PhD thesis, you know, you have to, there is one thing that I always tell people, even if you're writing an academic paper, there must be a logical flow. How do you tell your story to a primary six pupil to be able to understand, not with all these big, big grammars, you have to be able to tell your story so that when your uh, your reviewer picks up your PhD thesis, reads your summary alone, they want to tear into your PhD thesis. You know, my PhDs were like 300 and something pages. But my all my, all my reviewers were like happy to read it when they read the summary. They wanted to like, okay, what is this about? So that they must have that urge to want to read your work. So writing a PhD thesis is difficult. I won't lie to you. Your supervisor is your supervisor. 
is not your babysitter. You have to know the difference between your master's program. Your master's program, you are, master, you are mastering the methodology. In a PhD program, we want to see how you're able to apply your methodology and the theoretical stance that you've learned from a master's program in a PhD program. So you must be able, independence is important. And you must be, your supervisor will not run after you. You have to run after them because they have a lot of students. And they, all, they also have their own personal program, you know, to develop themselves. So you have to run after them. And that was what I did. You know, what I did then was I would send something to my supervisor every two weeks. Hmm. I was that, you know, if I sent a chapter one now, I don't have to wait for my supervisor to respond to that chapter one. Next two weeks or three weeks, I'll send my chapter two if it's ready. Hmm. And that was how I went about it. And yes, and what I also learned was this, that if you show, prove your, show to supervisor that you are ready to work, I think supervisor only, they only work with, supervisors work with students that show them that they are ready to work as well. Yeah. I mean, those are interesting advice and they speak for themselves. So I, I would like to ask you about conference attendance during PhD. Tell me about your first conference and what was the experience like? Oh, th thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. Um, oftentimes we apply for all these conferences and when we get rejected, especially some of us early career researchers, when we get rejected, I was like, oh my God, that's the end of the world. No, that's not the end of the world. I started attending conferences during my master's program. So I wrote an abstract from my master's thesis because what I wrote, I wrote my master's on Nigerian immigrants mar that married South African women in South Africa. In, in South Africa. So Nigerian men who married South African women. So yeah, I got rejected many times, but I, you know, my first conference, I, I submit, it was in Canada. I... You know, my abstract was accepted and I got a small grant from the university, which wasn't enough. Oftentimes also as students, if you look beyond who you are now. So at that point, I was ready to support myself. I actually supported myself with the money because I'd already worked a bit. You know, I was doing all these teaching and research assistant jobs. So I was ready to support myself with, you know, whatever then at that point. I, yeah, I got admitted. I paid my registration fee and I... I, you know, I contacted my supervisor. They oh, no money. I can contacted the university. The university gave me a very, you know, small grant. I said, oh, thank you. So, yeah, and I applied. My university supported me with a, with a letter to the Canadian embassy because that was my second time applying there. And I got the, I got the, I, yeah, I got the visa. It was kind of a great experience for me. Also, that was another thing that launched me into research uh, environment because it was inspiring seeing young and other people presenting at an international conference at the University of Manitoba. And I met a, I met a lot of African scholars, professors, students, PhD students, you know, in the North America and in Africa too. Very few of us from Africa, probably not more than, yeah. So it was, it was kind of a great experience. And from then I knew that, okay, I wanted to do research. And so that also still helped my my research journey, yes. Hmm. I think uh, this is quite uh, interesting and unique in one bit. Interesting in the sense that, you know, just thinking about myself when I did my master's at the University of Ibadan in Nigeria, I did not even, okay, yeah, I talked about conference. In fact, I probably was supposed to attend um, 
Sasa conference, uh, the sociology conference in Nigeria, but again, I just couldn't, um, I just couldn't see myself traveling long distance. I don't know whatever, what university they wanted to hold it then, but I never really thought of um, actually applying for an international conference of that magnitude, like traveling all the way to Canada. So, so in that sense, for our listeners, even if you're a master's student, you can actually begin to attend international conferences for your master's. You can, you know, apply first, ask for funding from your school, ask for funding from, from the conference themselves. And lo and behold, you might find yourself in Canada or in Japan attending conferences and presenting your research and making friends. You know, I, for one, have made lots of friends attending conferences. And I met Femi as well at a conference, I think in Italy. Was it in Italy? Amsterdam. Yeah. Well, we met at Amsterdam. Yeah, okay. I met a couple of other friends in, in, in Milan as well. Yeah, we met at Amsterdam in 2018, I believe. So, yeah, yeah and then we've been friends. We've even published papers uh, together. So conference is very important. Even if you don't have money, you know, like in some case, you can still attend, you can still apply for a conference. And if you cannot manage to secure funds, it's still fine. <laughs> apply. Okay. The fact that you can accept your paper itself is, is important. Yeah. Anthony, yeah, please. Yeah, I think I think they can. I think there's a lot of opportunities for uh, for Africans in low, you know some of us in low and middle income countries, lower and middle income countries. There's a lot of opportunities. I, I will tell you that I've never since then I've never I've never paid for any conferences myself mm. since then. Mm. Like and I've attended. I'm sure you know I've attended like tons of international. Mm. Yeah. and local conferences. And I always get this grant. Even this year, I still got grant from HIVR4P. So I think it depends on an individual. Like I say, you must always go for it. Mm. Don't be scared. That it, Just go for it. You, 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 know, you don't know what will come out of it. Like I have been to conferences. They paid my per diem, my flight. Even at Oxford, they paid for everything. Mm. Mm. But apply for us. Let's write... Put your efforts in your abstract. Write a convincing abstract. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? Not only about conferences, some of this training, training, you know, we have a lot of trainings as well. You know, I, I told you about the NIH training that I applied for from Africa. I mm. never knew, I would, you know, I just applied. They only selected for, like 40 people across the world out of over 261 applications. Mm. I just applied. And they chose me. I was really happy that I was. But you see, whenever you just apply and put your best in it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I think um, I will just to wrap up this episode now, I will ask you about what your major challenges were during your PhD and how you overcame those challenges. What were your major challenges? Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, PhD can be depressing. I hope you know. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and uh, then, uh, you know, I was married. I married during my PhD. Got my daughter during my PhD program as well. At that point, to be, a, you know, a family man. Mm. And at that point, that's when my wife was schooling, you know, was also doing her postgraduate studies. So a father, a husband, and a student at the same time. 
mm. balancing everything. And with the PhD program, and I was teaching so that I'll be able to get some money to support the family. Also, as you know, I, you know, the, the my department employed me as a tutor. But when I discovered that that thing was affecting my PhD program, I had to stop. And I called my wife to say, come, this is the case now. This is what you have as a family. And she was so supportive. And, and we, we managed what we, we had then. So um, a lot of challenges. You will have several clash. Definitely you will clash with your supervisor unless you guys are lying to yourself, you know. Because your supervisor, sometimes your supervisor, especially co-supervisor, probably your supervisor, sometimes they wouldn't understand what you're working on. And the and some supervisor wants to some supervisors want to do their second PhD from your work. So as a PhD student, you have to know what you want to do, not what your supervisor wants you to do. Hmm. What do you want to do? I want to study, I want to do something about adolescent girls and young uh, adolescent girls and young women, young women's sexual reproductive health. Your supervisor is also interested in that and also violence, but supervisor is trying to push you. Towards violence, so you have to tell your supervisor, "Ma'am, this is my area of interest." This, you know, in a respectful way, because mm-hmm. that's a kind of challenge with me and my co-supervisor, who was just all over me at some points to say, "Oh, you can't do this. You can do this. You can't do this. You can," you know, because my co-supervisor didn't like a particular so, a, a particular school of thought. So I was using some theories, right, mm-hmm. talking about social constructionism and interpretivism, all of those things. And she, 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 at that point, my co-supervisor didn't like essentialism. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you can't use it. I was like, but I cannot talk about social constructionism without talking about essentialism because social constructionism was a response to essentialist. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I was fed up. We had a serious clash. And I took that part of my work. I took it out. Mm. As, a, as a PhD student, I improved, I worked on it, I improved on it, and I published it. And mm. it was published in a very good journal. Mm. When my supervisor, my main supervisor saw it, and she was like, how did you do that? I said, I, I just, I wrote it. And she said, that thing had to go inside your PhD work. Wow. Because this is an important work. Mm. So you see that, you, yeah, I did it in a respectful way. I took it out, but I proved myself to them in another way. Mm. Mm. So you we have such clashes and you we have but you have to and also PSG is about managing people mm. and managing different emotions. You have to learn how to manage people and how to manage emotions and you have to be patient because you have a lot to lose. Your supervisor don't have much to lose. Mm. So mm. I think I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Okay. Now, now my final question is what would be your top advice to prospective students? as well as PhD students, what would be your top, top two advice to them? My advice would be, know what you want. Mm. Why are you going, in, why do you want to do a PhD program? Some people do it for financial benefit because they know there's a funding uh, associated with that program, right? Mm. But you have to know why you want to do it. And what are your future plans? Do you need a PhD for your future plans? Yes or no? If, if yes, go for it. And when you go for it, have it at the back of your mind that you will suffer for the next three to four years. Not really suffer. So if you, are, if you were making thousands or millions before, 
you will know that you can't make that when you start your PhD program. You, you have to persevere. You will see a lot of things. In fact, they will give you a lot of, I'm telling, during my PhD program, I was even given some very ridiculous work to do for some people, for mm. some lecturers who, but I did something and my top advice for you would be, know what you want to do, go for the PhD program with all your power, do your best and publish. I published, my supervisor confessed to me one that I published more than a staff mm. because she was the head of the department at that point as a PhD student. Publish, be important. And because my, also my university incentivized uh, publication at that point as a student, I was using that to make money as well. I published. And I didn't just publish in all these Pakistani journal of whatever or Mediterranean journal of whatever. Make sure you publish in good journal. It takes time to publish in good journals. Mm -hmm. So publish and give it your best and persevere. Learn patience. Don't fight with your supervisor. When your supervisor says, do this, do this, do this, and you know that it's not right, prove it to them in a kind of nice way from your work. Yeah, just be yourself and enjoy the journey. Hmm. Okay, thank you. That's an interesting wrap to this um, episode. I'm super happy. Thank you for sharing your experience. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Great. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned for the part two of my interview with Dr. Femi Adiagbo. In the part two of my interview, he touched on all issues related to his post-PhD experience, from securing a postdoctoral position to securing a research position in one of the famous research institutes in Africa, and to even getting a fellowship in the U.S. He touched on all these issues. So please stay tuned and enjoy. Thank you.